0: Well, good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3? I cheated. I had a marker there, so I got there faster. But as you're turning there, it was almost nine years to the day that I gave my very first message from this pulpit. And God hadn't called me to a pastoral role yet. I was serving as an elder and Walt Barrett was our senior pastor. The call to ministry would come a year later. But Walt was teaching through the book of 1 Peter. And he, I say that he planned his vacation around this passage so that someone else would have to teach it. So I drew the short straw, and I had to teach 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Now, that was my very first sermon ever. I think it was actually my very best sermon up to that point, because it was the only one I'd ever done. <laughs> but it is still one of my favorites, even though it's a, a challenging text. And it's one of my favorites because there is such joy and beauty that comes from marriage lived out God's way. And that's what this passage talks about this morning. So the series that we're in is in First and 2 Peter, and the title is Living Hope and it's, it, it is about the joy that we can have and the fulfillment that we can have living a God-centered life even under the most difficult of circumstances. There it is. So Living Hope and the title of the message this morning is going to be the same as it was nine years ago, actually. Different content, but it's Loving Submission and Servant Leadership. It's going to be 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll cover verses 1 through 7. And the outline has three parts this morning. First, godly order in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, godly beauty in verses 3 through 6. And then finally, godly leadership in verse 7. So I want to start by just reading through the text. It's a shorter text. And I'm reading out of the NIV 1984 version. It reads... Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, if you want to stir up a firestorm of criticism in our culture today, just take a stand for a biblical view of marriage And defend any one of the points, it doesn't matter which one. Maybe, for instance, take God's rules for sex inside and outside of marriage. Or his parameters for divorce. Or the gender of those who are eligible for marriage. These are all under attack by our culture today. Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A has been excoriated because in 2012, he took a stand for biblical traditional marriage. He said it's between one man and one woman. And to this day, opponents are blocking the opening of Chick-fil-A restaurants at airports, universities, cities, even in Chicago. It was a big brouhaha. And all because he took a stand for traditional marriage. Why is there such an uproar? Why such an attack on biblical marriage? Well, very simply, Satan is against everything that God is for. And he's for everything that God is against. And there's this spiritual battle that's raging. And I think the enemy knows this, that probably the quickest way to destabilize a society is to go for the heart of the family, which is marriage. And so we see this attack on on biblical marriage. Now, same-sex marriage might be the epicenter of this battle today, but it wasn't the first aspect of marriage, I don't think, that was under attack. One of the first, I think, is the biblical roles of a husband and a wife in marriage. And even some Christians are a little unsettled, a little uncomfortable with this aspect of marriage that you find in scripture. Some feel the need maybe to redefine it or explain it away or just ignore it. Well, I think that's in part because the roles of a husband and wife are often misunderstood and even more often misapplied. And so to start this out, if we're going to have a proper view of marriage, then we have to start with an understanding that marriage was God's idea from the beginning. God instituted marriage. It didn't come about by man's own design. Marriage is a divine institution. It's not a social custom. God established it. He and he alone makes the rules that define marriage. He determines the boundaries. Max Licato said this. He said, God created marriage no government subcommittee envisioned it. No social organization developed it. Marriage was conceived and born in the mind of God. Now, if marriage were just a social custom, if it was just something that man kind of came up with and refined over the centuries, then man could change the rules and make them whatever he wants. But it's not a social custom, it's a divine institution. So, if we're going to have a proper view of what marriage is, We have to go to the Word of God, and that's what we want to do this morning. So I want to start by first looking at godly order in verses 1 and 2. And it begins with wives, the female partner in a marriage. And it says, in the same way, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Now, this should probably beg the question in the same way as what. (laughs) When you read that, you should wonder. Just like seeing therefore. What's it there for? We need to go back and look. So if we flip back a little bit, if we look at verse 19, it speaks of bearing up under the pain of unjust suffering. And then verse 21 says, to this you were called, to suffering. I hope that's not what it's referring to. In the same way, in the same way, wives, you should suffer. Some like to say that there's three rings in marriage. The engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope that's not true and that's, that's not what it's referring to. Let's look back a little further. Verse 18 says, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Is that what it's talking about? Wives in the same way as slaves and masters, you do whatever he says? I hope not, otherwise I've been doing it all wrong for 36 years. (laughs) Well, if we go further back, from verse 11 on, it's talking about how Christians should live and act before an unbelieving world. It says that we're aliens and strangers in the world, and then verse 12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then it goes on to tell us how to live those good lives. Verse 13 says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. We covered that last time. It says whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him. So you see in this the motive, the motive for the Lord's sake. And we see it again in verse 19. It says, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. See, that's the motive. A consciousness, an awareness of God. It's to be done for the Lord's sake. So when it says, in the same way, it's referring to, first of all, the motive for submission motive for a Christian to submit to any type of authority, including that within marriage. It's an awareness of God and it's an obedience to him. That's what it means to call Jesus our Lord. We do what he says. So he's saying in the same way, this should be the motive for submission within marriage. But then it goes on and it also speaks to the manner of submission. A wife is to submit to her husband in the same manner as all of us are to submit to every, in any authority. Uh, whether that's the king, governors, or even in the same manner as a slave is to submit to a master. Now before we get hung up on that slave master thing, what is the manner of submission that it's talking about? Look at verse 17. It says, show respect to everyone. And verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. This is the manner of submission. This is what it's referring back to. Now, the comparison of a wife to slaves and masters in verse 18 does not make a husband a master any more than it makes him a governor or a supreme ruler or an emperor. It's simply comparing the manner of submission. I heard one woman who said, I divorced my husband for religious reasons. He thought he was God, and I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, there would be a problem in that, wouldn't there? So verse 1 continues, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And right there, that gets the hackles of many up. In the same way. The same motive, an awareness of God, in the same manner, with all respect. We're to be submissive. Women are to be submissive to their husbands. And so that does stir up a lot of people. In fact, many see it as being demeaning, sexist, misogynistic, even subhuman. The idea that a wife would submit to a husband. So what is God saying here? Well, the word submit, hupotasso, It actually means literally to set in order beneath or a more expanded meaning to set in order under someone or something. Keep a finger here in 1 Peter and just flip back to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look at a very similar verse. It's almost an exact parallel, but it gives us a little more fuller perspective of this passage. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to look, first of all, starting in verse 21. Here's this word again, submit. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Sounds familiar. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then in verse 6, children, obey your parents, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse four, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Down to verse five, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And then verse nine, masters treat your slaves in the same way. So what you see in this is God has established an order in his creation. He's not singling out wives. Every single person has a role that must submit to someone else. Husbands, wives, children's parents, slaves, masters, employees, employers, government officials, citizens. We're to submit to one another, is what it says. So back in 1 Peter, then, we're all to submit to every authority. Instituted under man, it says. And so there's a God-ordained order that we're all called to submit to. So for a wife, for a wife, to submit means to voluntarily place herself under the leadership of her husband out of devotion to God. This is the meaning, to voluntarily place herself under the leadership of her husband out of devotion to God. And here's the thing we have to realize, though. This does not make a wife inferior to her husband. It does not. Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are spiritual equals. In other words, the husband and the wife, they're spiritually equal, but God has given them different earthly roles in marriage. And this is a key. Submission is not about inferiority and, or superiority. It's about different roles. And I hope to show you that. Let me give you an example. We have a couple uh, guys in our church who are air traffic controllers. Ryan was up here for the special element just a bit ago. He's an air traffic controller. Works at the Chicago Terminal Radar Approach Control Facility. Known as the Chicago TRACON. He didn't know I was going to tell on him this morning. And so, they control the airspace all around Chicago. Now as a pilot, if I fly out of DuPage Airport on an instrument flight plan, I have to be in radio contact with Chicago TRACON. The tower switches me over. I called him up on a, on a pre-assigned frequency. Sometimes, every once in a while, I'll get Ryan. And so it's kinda cool, because he knows my tail number, and so he's, uh, he's giving me instructions. If Ryan says to me, turn left heading 240, climb and maintain 6,000 feet, I have to do exactly what he says. The law requires it. I have to obey that. I have to submit to that. Because he's the controller and I'm the pilot. And he has that authority within that role. Now when Ryan comes to church on Sunday morning, (laughs) we're in different roles. I'm the pastor, and he's a member of our church family. So if Ryan were to say to me in an air traffic controller voice, Paul, stop talking to that person and kick him out of the church, <laughs> well, guess what? I don't, to, I don't have to obey that. I don't have to follow that. You see, the the principle that applies there is in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. There's, There's elders and leaders within the church, an order that God has established. But when I'm flying, the fact that Ryan can tell me what to do doesn't make him superior. It doesn't make me inferior. And in a church setting, it doesn't make me superior or Ryan inferior. We're spiritually equal. But God has given us different roles. Let me give you another example. Ephesians 5 said that we are to submit to one another. Now, when you come to a red light and you stop and you let someone else go first, you're submitting to that person, right? Does that make them superior to you? Does that make you inferior? Now, you're not only submitting to that person, moreover, you're submitting to the authority that put the law in place. And and beyond that, you're submitting to God who established that authority to put that law in place. But it doesn't make you inferior to the person just because they go first. See, stoplights and the order that they enforce are placed there by the authorities for the smooth functioning of the intersection. Suppose you had two different stoplights at that street and they're all each running on their own program. They were doing their own thing. What would that be like? Well, here's a picture from an article titled, Traffic light glitch leads to chaos in Singapore. Check that out, how would you like to be in the middle of that? Sometimes a marriage can look kind of like that too. You see, God has established an order for the smooth functioning of society, for government, for churches, for families, for marriage. It doesn't mean that one person is superior and one is inferior. It means that God has established different roles. Now, something to note in the Ephesians 5 passage and and carrying over into Ephesians 6, it says, it doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. That's a different word, hupotasso. And, and obey, I'm sorry, that's submit is hupotasso. Obey as hupokuro. That's a different word. It doesn't say wives, obey your husbands. Even though this word obey is used many times in this passage, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart as you would obey Christ. But Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And I think there's there's an important distinction there. It's subtle, but I think there's a point there. A wife is not to be treated like a slave or a child. She's a companion, a spiritual equal, a fellow heir of eternity. And so it would be wrong for a husband to treat her any other way. Now, if you're still struggling with this concept of submitting and with equality, let me just point out one more thing. If, If this just still seems so inappropriate to you that a wife should submit to a husband, consider this. Jesus, our Lord, was submissive to God the Father, He was submissive. First Corinthians 1: I'm sorry, First Corinthians 11:3 says, "Now I want you to realize that the, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God." Why? So I think you're in pretty good company there, because Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. There's an established order in marriage and society, even in the Godhead. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Yet to say that Jesus was not equal to the Father would be wrong. Philippians 2 says he was in very nature God. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one, we're equal, but there was an established order within the Godhead, and Jesus He humbled himself and took on the role of a servant, even to the point of death. And we're told in Philippians 2 that our attitude should be what? The same as Christ. That should be our attitude, an attitude of submission. So order's been established by God in the Godhead, in government, in families, in marriage. It allows relationships to function effectively, yet without taking away the dignity of any individual. That's what biblical submission is about. So why is this such a problem for us? Why do we men have a problem submitting to authority like the government? Why do women struggle to submit to their husbands? Why is that? Well, in a word, the fall. The fall of mankind into sin. When sin entered the world, it corrupted everything. And there were consequences for that sin. And God spoke judgment upon mankind. Let me read you Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he, God, said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, this is like a declaration of the consequences of sin. And the desire that the woman would have for her husband is not a healthy desire. That type of desire it's talking about is used again in chapter 4, where God is speaking to Cain, who killed his brother. And God said, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin desires to have you, to take control of you, to rule over you. And so I believe this is the same type of desire that's spoken in chapter 3 where it says to the wife, your desire will be for your husband. It's a desire to control him, to rule over him and to not be submissive to his position of authority. And he, on the other hand, will rule over you. He won't want to lead you sacrificially in love. But rather, he'll want to rule over you. See, this is the, in Genesis chapter 3, it's the origin of the battle of the sexes. And we see this played out throughout human history. On the one hand, you have male chauvinism, where women are treated as objects. Something to be owned. And so they're oppressed, dominated, subdued. That's man and his sinfulness wanting to rule over women. And then you have feminism, women denying the leadership role of a man, both ways. Even within churches, there are women who desire the position of a man as a pastor in a teaching role over men, something that scripture specifically forbids. So as a result of the fall, it's no longer a wife's natural inclination to want to submit to the leadership of her husband. And it's no longer a husband's natural inclination to want to love and lead her sacrificially. He wants to dominate her. She wants this position of authority. And so you have this tension in marriage. So how are we ever going to make marriage work? Well, if we try to do it on our own, we won't. We won't. Well, you know what scripture says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain, those who build it. But with the help of God in their lives, with the role of the scripture and the, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to live a godly life and to have godly relationships even within marriage. So God has established this order for the smooth functioning of society but even more than that, it's been established so that the voluntary submission might be a testimony, a reflection of Christ himself to an unbelieving world. Look at what else verses 1 and 2 say. It says, be submissive to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. This verse says something really cool. It says that this loving submission is something unique, and it's beautiful. It's unique to Christianity. See, if it weren't unique to Christianity, then you'd be winning them over to Buddhism or Hinduism or some other, you know, ism. (laughs) It's unique to Christianity, and it's beautiful. It's attractive. An unbelieving husband sees this, and he's drawn to it. Now, he said that for a wife, submitting means voluntarily placing herself under the leadership of her husband out of love and devotion to God. Well, it can't be forced. Forced submission is oppression. And that's what Muslim wives face. See, they have no choice. They have no will in that. They are forced to submit to their husbands. Their religion, their families, their government all force them to submit, along with a number of ungodly things. But the voluntary and loving submission of a wife to her husband is under the Lord is unique and it's beautiful and it can draw people to Christ. Now, I want you to notice two things this text does not tell a Christian woman to do, woman to do in regard to an unbelieving husband. First, She's not told to leave him. He doesn't say, leave. He's not a believer. He's a pagan. Doesn't tell her to leave him. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7.13 says, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. And then the second thing it does not tell her to do, and you might find this surprising, it does not tell her to preach to him. It doesn't. Instead, it talks about them being won over without words. Does that surprise you? Now, this doesn't mean that you should never share the gospel. It doesn't mean it would be wrong to share the gospel. But if you're constantly beating him over the head with the Bible and yapping at him and and nagging him to come to the Lord, that probably would be wrong. I heard about a woman who was convinced that her wayward husband would become a Christian. And so she constantly pleaded with him to come to the faith. She gave him little cards with Bible verses on them, CDs with sermons, Christian books, all to no avail. One day she fell to her knees and prayed fervently to God, God, please remove whatever the obstacle is to my husband coming to faith. And there was this blinding flash, and poof, she was gone. (laughs) I, I like what John MacArthur said in contrast to that. He said, The loving, gracious submission of a Christian woman to her unsaved husband is the strongest evangelistic tool she has. Isn't that beautiful? That's what this passage is saying. There's something beautiful and attractive and unique about loving submission. In a Christian context, within marriage. Now, just a word of caution to young people. This verse is not an endorsement of missionary dating. That's where you go date or marry some guy who's not a believer with the hopes that you'll win him over to Christ. No, there's an overarching principle in Scripture that says you're not to be yoked to an unbeliever. So this is not licensed for missionary dating, but to a woman, a believing woman who finds herself in a marriage with an unbelieving husband. There's great hope in this. There's instruction and there's hope because he can be won over by the beautiful purity, the reverence of her life. So that's godly order. That's the biggest part of this. Let's look secondly, though, at godly beauty in verses 3 through 5. It says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, our our society is just enamored with outward physical appearance. You know, but God looks at the heart. Now, some have taken this verse, uh, verse 3, and say this prohibits prohibits the wearing of braids or any kind of jewelry or any kind of nice, fancy, fashionable clothes. Well, that's a bad interpretation, and here's why. Because if you go back to the original language, the word fine isn't in there. Where it says fine clothing, it's not in there. So let's take that word out. And now listen to what it says. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and clothes. Okay, if you're going to prohibit the jewelry and the braids, you got to prohibit the clothes too. So it's not, this verse is not a prohibition, but a principle. And the principle is outward modesty and inward beauty. That's the principle that this verse is putting forward. Now, this doesn't mean that a godly woman should not do anything to maintain her appearance or that she shouldn't wear, or she should wear just only worn out, unattractive clothing, that she should be like in sackcloth. That's that's not what this means. The wife of noble character in Proverbs 31, she's like the model that so many hold up the P31 woman, right? Right? And it says that she wore colorful, high-quality clothing. And the bride in Song of Solomon adorned her appearance with jewelry. So it's not prohibiting these things. Christian women can be attractive without being worldly. Listen, this verse in Proverbs eleven twenty-two, one of my favorites. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Now, discretion can be in the way a woman acts. It can be in the way a woman dresses. Proverbs says, that's that's disgusting. And in God's eyes, it can be too if there's not discretion there. So how can a woman discern what's appropriate for wearing in public? Here's, Here's four questions that I think might help in this regard. Ask yourself this, number one, why am I wearing it? And this goes to the question of my motive, why am I wearing it? Secondly, whose attention am I trying to capture? I've seen husbands become suspicious and wives wander into sin when they suddenly begin dressing in a sexually alluring way. We're not to imitate the sexually alluring dress of our culture, we're to be modest. Number three, is it pleasing to God? And number four, could it cause someone else to stumble? In fact, that person, the woman wearing it, could it cause her to stumble? Now again, if a man lusts after a woman, that's his sin issue. But if a woman is intentionally dressing in a sexually enticing way to invoke that kind of reaction, that's her sin issue. Because the principle is one of modesty. I like seeing my wife dressed up, I do. And and I know she's dressing up just for me. Tomorrow night, we're going out on a date together. Our our parenting class from the past year gave us a very generous gift certificate to a fancy restaurant. So we're going to get dressed up and celebrate. And there is nothing wrong with that at all, provided it's done with modesty. But the other point this passage is making is that it's a woman's inner attitude that's beautiful in the sight of the Lord. So a woman with her Bible open, studying the word of God, kneeling in prayer, lifting up her hands in praise and worship of God, that's true beauty. So ladies, your time at church, your time in a group Bible study, your time alone in prayer, your time in corporate prayer, your time alone in the word, that's a different kind of beauty salon. See, that is what develops within you, what verse 4 says, is the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And I would add, and in the sight of godly men. It's of great worth. This is a different kind of beauty, and a different kind of beauty salon. So verse 5 then, it says, For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now the Bible tells us that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. There were two occasions where she went with Abraham to a foreign land. And she was so beautiful that Abraham was afraid they were going to kill him and take her as his wife. And they probably would have. So Abraham concocted this kind of harebrained scheme. He said, tell him you're my sister. And he rationalized it, because it was kind of half true. She was his half-sister, a daughter of his father by another mother. And so he said, tell him you're my sister. But what he didn't have her tell them is, and I'm his wife. So she was taken into the court of two kings and almost brought into a sexual relationship with those kings, but thankfully, God stepped in and intervened both times. And those kings ended up rebuking Abraham for his lack of judgment, as well they should have. Now, Abraham's plan had to be a little unsettling to Sarah. Don't you think, you want me to lie? You, uh, well, you won't? Come on, honey. Like, you are my sister, after all. You're my half-sister. Okay. But it probably made her a little uncomfortable, so that should beg another question, is there any limit to a wife's responsibility to submit to her husband's leadership? Are there any boundaries? Where do you draw the line? Well, there are boundaries, absolutely, and it's when a husband's leadership is no longer in accordance with God's word. This is the boundary. This is the safeguard. This is the guardrail for Christian wives, and you'll see a similar principle in Acts chapter 5 where the apostle said to the Jewish leaders, we must obey God and not men. See, when that instruction goes against the word of God, that's where you draw the line. In his book, uh, Desiring God, uh, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, John Piper said this, the husband does not replace Christ as a woman's supreme authority. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she hopes, she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in, a right, and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. I think that says it really, really well. See, the attitude should be, honey, I really want to submit to you. I really do. And I'm praying that God will speak to your heart and bring your actions in line with his words so that I once again can fall under your leadership. So there are boundaries to this submission. Now, verse 6 does say that Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Now, this is not a title of subservience, like a slave. Master was a title of reverence and respect. It's almost identical to when men used to call women ma'am, madam. That came from the tradition there was an authority within the government, like a ruler. They'd say, yes, ma'am. They're recognizing that authority. So that's what it, it is here with master. It's, a, it's just a, a title used to show respect. And then it says, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Well, this triggered in my mind, I'm, I'm not a, a woman, I'm not a wife. What kind of fear might there be involved in this whole submission thing? You may have your own. I thought of a couple. Maybe the fear of portraying weakness, I'll look like a doormat. Maybe the fear of being ridiculed by the world, by friends, co-workers... Or maybe the fear that, that this could enable a husband's bad behavior. If I submit to that, what will he tell me to do next? So I need to resist. You know, I need to be strong. Those might be some of the fears that could cause a husband to not want to submit or a wife to not want to submit to her husband's leadership. But verse 6 says to do what is right and not give in to this type of fear. So we looked at godly order and godly beauty. They deal with a wife's role. The third part, godly leadership, deals with a husband's role. Too bad we're out of time. (laughs) Amen, Amen, my brother says. No, I'm kidding. This is only one verse dedicated to husbands here. There's other places where the scripture will really hammer husbands. But there's one verse here, and we want to look at it quickly. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. There it is again, in the same way. What way? The same motive, loving devotion to the Lord and awareness of God in the same manner with all respect. The same rules apply to the husband as the wife here. And it says that in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, I like the ESV translation. It says live with your wives in an understanding way. That's a good translation. In an understanding way, endeavoring to understand your wife. Husbands, you and your wives are not the same. I'm not the same as my wife. We're different in many ways. We're different physically. We're different emotionally. And we need to work to understand those differences and appreciate those differences. A little boy and girl were at daycare, and the little girl, Sally, she said to the boy, Hey, Billy, you want to play house? And he said, Sure, what do you want me to do? And Sally replied, I want you to ask me about my day, to listen to my concerns and understand how I feel. Well, little Billy was astonished. Ask about your day, listen to your concerns, understand how you feel, he said all bewildered. He said, I have no idea how to do that. Sally said, perfect, you can be the husband. Yeah, we don't. It's, it's kind of funny, but it's sad too that we have no idea how to understand our wives and oftentimes don't make an effort to do so. But a Christian, is, a Christian husband is to strive to understand his wife, to consider her strengths and her weaknesses and to work with them, to understand her needs, her fears, her feelings, her insecurities. We're to try to understand that. We weren't placed over our wives to dominate her. We were placed over a wife to protect and to love and to encourage and build her up, to nourish her, to lead her. That's the purpose of this order. Yes, God placed a husband in leadership over his wife, but a husband's decision... Sh- It should be based upon her needs before his own. He should be thinking, what does my wife need? What would benefit her the most, even at his own expense? Back to the passage in Ephesians, it said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. A Christian husband is called to lead his wife sacrificially. That's what Christ did for his bride, the church. Amen? He led her sacrificially. He gave himself up for her. He put her needs before his very own at the cost of his very life. That's sacrificial leadership. And that's how God instructs us husbands to lead our wives. Sacrificially, verse 7 also says to treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, the weaker partner doesn't refer to her spiritual or moral state, it simply refers to her physical form. She's not as strong physically and sometimes not as strong emotionally as you might be. That's not always a given. You might have a wife who's stronger than you, but in general. Her form, she's not as strong physically. And so we're not to lose sight of this because a wife who loves the Lord is a spiritual equal and it says a co-heir of eternal life. How I wish that every husband would know what it means to truly love his wife and to love her sacrificially. Guys, if you really got a hold of that, To treat them in a way that's consistent with the character of, of God. To treat them in a way like Christ treated the church. What woman's heart would not melt in the face of such love? What woman would not want to follow that kind of leadership? The Life Application Study Bible says this. Submission is rarely a problem in homes where both partners have a strong relationship with Christ and where each is concerned for the happiness of the other. Amen. That attitude in marriage, it is so beautiful and fulfilling when when lived out. And then verse 7 concludes, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. See, men, your family is part of the ministry work that you do for the Lord. So when you mistreat your wife, it damages your relationship with the Lord. It may even disqualify you from certain types of ministry. Think about the qualifications of an elder or a deacon. The way you treat your wife might disqualify you from that type of ministry. But when we love our wives, we're loving God. When we sacrifice for our wives, We're sacrificing for the Lord. It's a living sacrifice, and it's beautiful in God's eyes because it's a reflection of his love for his bride, the church. That's what he calls husbands to. So wrapping up. Most people want happiness in their marriage. Who wouldn't want? You want happiness in your marriage? Most people want happiness in their marriage. But God is more concerned first with your holiness in your marriage. That's what he's concerned about first. And when we live out holiness in our marriage, we find joy and fulfillment and even happiness when we live out a marriage the way God intended it. And so for wives, God wants you to replace that stubborn resistance with loving submission. He wants a beauty that comes from within. And for husbands, he wants to replace selfish oppression with servant leadership. Our marriages should be a picture of, of Christ and his bride, the church, where a husband lays down his, wife, his life for his wife, and a wife lovingly follows the leadership of her husband. And if you're in Christ, he set you free from bondage to sin, and he's placed his spirit in you, and he's given you his word, which you can now understand. If you are in Christ, you have the power to live this way. Praise God, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your help to be the people that you call us to be. Our brokenness gets in the way and it, and it shows up in all kinds of relationships. The closer the relationship, God, the more we see the brokenness. And no place is that more evident than in our marriages. God, I pray that you'd help us overcome our selfish pride and our desire as husbands to rule over our wives. Help us to submit to one another out of reverence for you, God, out of an awareness of you and what you've done for us. God, we want those around us to see something beautiful and attractive in us. We want them to see Christ in us. And I just thank you that Christ came that he took on the role of a servant, of a slave. He humbled himself to the point of death for us, so that we might be set free from sin. God, in doing that, he set a perfect example of loving submission and servant leadership. And God, may this be a hallmark at Riverside, that Christ's likeness may be seen in our relationships with others, in our families, in our marriages. God, we ask for the desire and the strength to do this. Point out what it is that needs to change in each of our hearts, even today, God. I pray that you would do this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen.